Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Long Shot Podcast, of course brought to you by 342 Productions. I'm your host, Duncan Robinson, and I'm here with Davis Reed. Davis, how are we doing? I am great. I am uh, blessed and never stressed. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, Davis is currently sporting a Dreamville Records sweatshirt, uh, which I have a lot of appreciation for. Yes. Um, Tremaine Cole is, is one of the best, in my opinion. So that's that's fantastic. Agreed. Hey, you uh, you have a very soothing voice. Have you heard that before? I haven't, um, but I, I, I take that as the ultimate compliment, especially for somebody who hosts a podcast. So thank you for that. You Yeah, you speak with a, a little bit of a slow intonation, but it's but it's great. I've uh, it's funny, you know. We've been friends for like ten years now, and uh, I've seen a lot of comments about your voice. And now I'm uh, very keen on listening. You know, it's like it's it's changed the way that I uh, listen to you now. I think maybe it's different on the podcast. I, don't, I think maybe you turn it on a little bit, um, but it's great. And sometimes it makes me feel like I'm uh, speaking with like a a hyper energy. I mean, I, I, I think there's an argument to be made that I, I, I lean into it a little bit um, in the professional setting of a podcast, but I think that I would be expected to in some capacity. Um, so I guess we're just starting off with just complimenting me. So why don't you just continue to do that? And what, what do you got? Yeah, this is what we do on this podcast, which is it's become clear. Um, I, I'm going to continue complimenting you, actually, because another record has been broken. And my job, apparently, is just to remind you of every time that this happens. So this week you became uh, the first in Miami Heat history to make 200 or more threes in back-to-back seasons. That that did happen this week. Um, yeah, I, it's funny. You know, I, I, I got asked about that after the game, and somebody asked me, Ira Winderman, who, who's our beat reporter, asked me about if I expected all of this before I had, you know, really kind of worked my way into the lineup at the beginning of last year. And my answer was was basically this in that, and I've shared some stories about my career, mostly kind of the pitfalls and the adversity, um, particularly early on, maybe in my time in Michigan or high school when I, I just wasn't, frankly, a very good player. And what I, what I said was, is that I've learned in my career not to expect anything. Now, I've always felt that I was I was capable and that this could be within my horizon, but I also am not naive to the fact that it requires opportunity and situation, which is so much of everything in life, you know, timing, um, circumstances, all that sort of stuff. But I, I believe it specifically rings true really in the world of highly competitive basketball. Um, maybe that's high-level high school basketball, certainly high-level college basketball or college basketball in general. Um, but I think as you continue to, to move up, opportunity and situation become even more and more paramount. And I think where you really, really see this is that there are so many players in the NBA that are capable. And, and I alluded to this on a previous episode in that the guys at the back of the bench that, you know, are getting crushed by your average fan. Oh, he's a bum. I could beat him in one-on-one, this and that. Those guys are dogs. Those guys are killer. Like those guys can hoop at a high, high level. Um, but it's just the reality is not everybody gets true, genuine opportunity. And I don't mean getting thrown into the game, you know, at the end for three minutes. Some guys are able to parlay that into other opportunities, but the reality is those types of situations are really, really difficult to play well in. I mean more of 
you have the support and backing of a coaching staff. You have the support and backing of teammates. You have guys that are wanting you to go out and be aggressive and play to your strengths. And those are all things that, that I've been afforded in Miami. And to just put it simply, I, I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful for it because I know that, yes, I have to check all my boxes. I have to show up, be the consummate professional, handle my business, or at least try to be um, all of those things. Nobody's perfect in that regard. But I could still do all of those things and very reasonably not have the support, the backing, the encouragement that I have had in Miami. So for that, uh, this was kind of a long-winded, long-form answer response to your question. Um that I've, I'm just very grateful, uh, and, and I am, um, not to get to get too sappy here, but I, I'm very appreciative of all the opportunities. And so to answer the, the question that the reporter asked me, no, I didn't necessarily expect this because I've learned to not expect anything. Um, but I do, I did think that it was within the realm of possibility. Um, and I guess, yeah, clearly it has not that I've like done anything crazy here. Let's also keep in mind that, uh, you know, it's, it's the current NBA where threes are jacked pretty much every other possession. So, uh, and that's my job to do it. So, yeah, it's a great answer. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling on what my role here is, whether it's to continue to pump your tires and tell you that, look, you've afforded yourself that opportunity. Like, yeah, you're in the right situation. Sure. Yes, they instill that confidence in you. They give you the platform. You know, they they give you the shots or not give you the shots, but they encourage you to take those shots. But you've earned that. Um, so, you know, I could pump your tires. I could also go the other direction and tell you that, you know, Steph's done this eight times. Right. Clay's done this seven times. Uh, you know, you've done it twice, which is great. It's your first two seasons. But, you know, we're still climbing the mountaintop. Well, I think the beautiful thing about Steph Curry right now is he is the ultimate perspective when it comes to shooting. Right. I I think maybe for a second, or I think anybody would maybe think for a second that they're, you know, maybe I'm having a pretty good shooting season. I'm doing this or that. And then you just see the statistics that this guy is putting up on a consistent basis. And it's just, it's otherworldly. It, it is... I think the last five games, he's averaging over nine threes made per game. Yeah. I had a stretch last year where I think in three games, I made 24 or 25 threes. And I legitimately felt like everything <laughs> I threw up was going in. I felt like I was throwing the ball into the Atlantic Ocean. Like, I, I, would, I would never miss. And this guy's done it 10x. I mean, he, he's done nine a game for five games straight. It's just one time in my career, I've hit 10 threes. I think fought for the last five games he's done it. It's just like it's it's sickening. It's an absolute joke. I, I I think it's you look at his numbers and he's I believe at this point surpassed his unanimous MVP season. Obviously that year they were the best team in the NBA as well, and this year they're battling to to get a uh, play-in spot. But I I don't care. It's incredible what he's done. He needs to be in this MVP conversation um, because when you watch him play basketball, he is one of the few players in the NBA when you watch him play where it's very clear nobody else in the NBA can do what he's doing. Yeah, it's insane. I think he's now the leading scorer in the NBA. Uh, Do you look at him as a guy that you can take things from or is he just – because your games aren't that similar. Like the way you get shots aren't that similar. Are there things you can take – when you watch what he's doing or are you sort of solely focused on the way you're getting shots? 
Uh, bits and pieces, right? I mean, there's, there's like I alluded to, there's things that no player in the NBA, I think, can, can emulate um, what he does. Specifically, his ability to get shots off the dribble and at that range and the way in which he does it within possessions. I mean, he'll go, and obviously he's the focal point of their offense, as he should be. Um, but you look at, at how they structure things offensively and it's pretty clear that every single time down the floor, the main objective is to get Steph Curry a look. Right. Uh, the, the thing that I am most able to take is I can't necessarily relate to the handle, you know, what he's able to do with the ball in his hands. But when he gives the ball up, he has an incredible ability to find space and to find openings when, you know, as a defender, you know, he drives, comes off pick and roll, whatever, gets into the paint and he gives the ball up. There's that moment of pause where, okay, my job's done. And that's when he really capitalizes. And credit to the, the Warriors and the rest of that group, they do an incredible job of as soon as he gives it up, where's Steph? We got like, he he's now is the opportunity to get him an open one and an easy one because he takes so many tough ones. It's, it's important to get those relief threes, the ones where the defense is kind of lacking and you're able to get a, you know, a rhythm shot. Um, so that's one area where I, I really try to kind of steal. Um, and, and I'll even say it like they have really good, like Draymond's really good at obviously, but even guys like a, like a Juan Toscano Anderson is really good at off the ball, just screening like finding Steph's man, creating space for Steph. And I try to be on my teammates here and there. Like I'll always say to KZ, Andre does it naturally uh, just because he's like next level basketball IQ. But like, I'll say little stuff to some of my teammates. Like, Hey, when I drive and kick, like, you know, set that pin down, blah, blah, so on and so forth. And, and, and I sell it not to, cause I'm like thirsty to get shots. Obviously I kind of am, but it's also a lot of times if I do that and come off two will go with me and KZ will get a dunk or, or that sort of thing. So uh, there's definitely things that you can take away. Cause he's just an incredible basketball player and plays with such an IQ, but there's also things that he does that are just like one of one behavior, as I would say. Yeah. I mean, your, your gravity is, is pretty well documented and that makes sense because you're, you're getting shot. You're right. You're getting shots in similar ways when it comes to the off ball movement. That's a perfect segue, actually, because I wanted to talk about Bam's game winner uh, against yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, got to talk about that. Got to talk about that. And the reason that's a good segue is when you go back and watch that play, Bam is alone on the left wing. There's a bunch of action going on on the right side of the court. I think Goron comes to set you a screen with like eight seconds left, and you immediately sprint. You refuse the screen from Goron. You sprint to the left corner on the same side where Bam is. Which I think when you watch it, you think, why is Duncan going over there to crowd the court? But you you have so much gravity that you you put your defender in that position where he can't help off of you. And it seemed to spread the court a little bit for Bam. The reason I say all this is I'm I'm curious, is that something that's predetermined? Like is someone telling you to go over there? Is that a read you're making on your own? How are you guys handling that last like 10 seconds? Do you know what you're going to? So this is an interesting conversation because I think it can go in a couple different directions. And I, and I don't necessarily think that one is wrong and one is right. Now, I, I want to preface this by saying in preseason, we, we would play and scrimmage a lot in preseason in our training camp. And we were scrimmaging and it came down to the wire. And I was on BAM's team. And we had it was tie game, very similar situation. Tie game uh, in practice in a, in a Miami Heat practice scrimmage. 
Bam comes down the floor, makes it very clear he's taking the last shot. I was like, I don't know where I was, maybe mentally, but like same kind of thing. It comes up on the left wing, like almost to a T. Somebody like sets like a kind of a fake pin down just to create some like whatever action for me on the backside. I fly off of the pin down and run towards the ball <laughs> because I'm thinking like, I'm going to shoot the game winner. Like I'm like missing, I'm like missing the moment of like clearly Bam is like trying, it was Precious who was on defense. Clearly Bam is like trying to, you know, sun the rookie and let him know like this is his shit, right? Like our first big scrimmage training camp. I like run to the ball. Bam like pissed off. Like why is Duncan like waves me out. <laughs> so I wave out to the exact same corner, the exact same setup that was this game winner the other day. And I'm sitting there like, and Andre was guarding me. And I'm sitting in the corner and I'm like, oh, I just messed this up for Bam. Like now the spacing's kind of messed up. He doesn't have as much room to operate. He ends up driving. Andre gets involved because I'm in the corner. Because Andre's like a high level IQ. No, he knows Bam's not going to pass it. He understands NBA. And once again, not that Bam should, but like understands NBA ego situation, all that type of stuff that that comes together in a moment like that um, and leaves as Bam starts to drive, doubles, and Bam gets bailed out by a foul, and we ended up winning, so it was fine. So fast forward to the other day in the Nets game, and G came to set that pin down, and I just cut out, and I should have cut back out. Sorry, there's an argument to be made. I should have cut back out to the side that I started on, giving Bam that whole wing to just operate, right? Now, with that being said, there's an argument that if you have four in that side, then you can send one and have three guard four on the backside and put two on the ball. Make Bam pass, especially if he's going to dribble it down to three or four seconds like he did. Eventually, we'll run out of time and get a bad shot. The defense can scramble and at least get a good contest on something that we didn't expect. Whereas, instead, if you just let Bam go one-on-one, he can get something kind of in his wheelhouse. So I end up the other day cutting through, and there I am again, finding myself in that exact same corner. And as he's going into his bag, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, dear, I think I might have just fucked this up again. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I just really hope Bam makes this. Uh, and luckily, not that Kyrie isn't, isn't a smart basketball player because he is, he, he didn't help at all, really. Um, and Bam still had space to operate. But there, our coaching staff, one of the coach in particular, was giving me a hard time. And was like, "Dude, you did it again." He's like, "We <laughs> talked about this in practice. Like, let the man just have his space and go." Um, so if you see me in that in that possession, I'm like pushed all the way to the absolute corner. <laughs> My feet are like basically out of bounds because I'm trying to give Bam as much space as possible. Uh, obviously, he didn't need too much space because he was still able to to get to his jumper and win the game. But it was a funny, uh, little did we know that that, that preseason moment was going to be a foreshadowing uh, of the real thing against the Nets on a, on a Sunday afternoon game. Well, you didn't run for the handoff. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, I thought it I thought it was it made sense. I saw you run into the corner. I was like, oh, okay. Cause now if Kyrie helps at all, that's a corner three for you, which we'll take all day. Uh yeah. but that's hilarious. Are you so do you feel yourself running to that corner and in real time being like, oh no, what am I doing? <laughs> it was it was once I got there, because I was just like cutting through, like, you know, naturally you just try to find space. And I once I found space, I was like, I did it again. Um, but yeah, it was 
I will say like it, you could argue it either way, right? You could argue it that you, it's better to have the full side, not, you know, somebody like myself knowing that they're not going to help on, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, so it, it could be, it depends which way you want to cut it basically. Um, but it, it ended up working out. So obviously I made the right decision, right? <laughs> right. I was going to say, you could have just skipped this entire conversation and just been like, yeah, this is exactly what we talked about. It worked perfectly. Right. Uh, I love the celebration. You, the, the benefit of you being in that corner is you're the first to bam, you get to first jump to bam, on. Yeah. It le- led to some good pictures. Also great timing on our part that we decided to interview him a couple days before. It's just, yeah, yeah I, I think it, it maybe was destiny. Let's please not let that get lost in all of this. And that the same week that Bam Adebayo was on the Long Shot podcast was the same week he hit his first game winner uh, as an NBA player. So I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I'll just Correct. leave it at that. To all um, of our yeah, to all of our future uh, guests, just know right. there might be some weird juju in the air, positive yeah. juju that is with the Long Shot Pod. I love it. Uh, all right, what do we got? We got some uh, Reddit question here. Yes, we do. So this is actually an old mailbag question. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's sometimes fun to dip back into the mailbag. So this is from uh, Chazinger. Chazinger. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but on Reddit, uh, when you posted your Reddit AMA, this was a question we did not get to. They asked, "What is your pregame or postgame ritual?" Mm, that's a good one. Uh, I get asked about that a decent amount. So my. My pregame ritual is is basically uh, I always take a pregame nap. Um, I've actually this year I've started to shout out to Wayne Ellington for this. Actually, he he reached out to me and uh, we kind of always go back and forth about you know shooting stuff and just little stuff here and there, ways to get shots or routines or whatever. Um, and he he had recommended meditation and something that I kind of done before um, some visualization stuff, but it was kind of loosely like I would just kind of go through it and uh now since talking to him I, I actually have an app um that I have and and it's a call it's a waking up app app with Sam Harris uh it's just like a, a daily mindfulness thing and it's not really particularly like pertaining to basketball but I, I do it before my nap um just kind of visualize some stuff go through some stuff try to just be present take my nap wake up pregame meal always uh then I head to the arena and my shooting routine is, is pretty much always the same um, have kept it, kept it the same basically throughout my entire professional career. Um, I, I go through a little stretching activation before it, uh, do my shooting. And then after my shooting, I'll do a little bit of, uh, I'll just like write down some stuff. Um, you know, whatever you want to call it, journaling, set, setting some intentions. Uh, yeah, w- w- like I said, whatever you want to call it. And then I'll do some like final prep, go through some film stuff, watch some of their stuff, uh, just kind of get reacclimated. Obviously, we kind of already covered it as a team uh, by this point, but just some individual, uh, you know, personnel stuff or action stuff or what they're doing in a specific situation. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's pretty much game time from there. And then uh, post game, just get a good meal. Uh, drink a lot of water and, and get a good night's sleep. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm high on a quality night's rest. I think that goes a long way. So that's, that's pretty much the, what the game day looks like. Not, not super exciting, but I think the key there is, I don't think there's like one right answer to how to do it. I think the key is to just maintain consistency. I think that in terms of performance, if you keep everything the same leading up to it, then you're like limiting variables, right? So then you you can expect consistency in your performance if you maintain consistency in your routine and your habits. 
So that's my that's my big that's the thing that that's the hill I am willing to die on is that uh, consistency and just maintaining a routine is incredibly important. Yeah, that makes sense. I, a couple follow up questions: Do you always have the same pregame meal, or does that change? So it it changes here and there. Um, I I go through like stretches, right? Where like I'm I'm a little superstitious, uh, whatever you want to call it. So you know if 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 I eat something and I play well, man, I'll probably run that back, you know, and, and, I, and I'll run it dry until I, you know, have a game where maybe I don't play well, then I'll try to mix it up. Um, but it's usually some combination of either like salmon or uh, chicken with like a rice or a grain and then a vegetable. Pretty simple stuff. Nothing, uh, nothing groundbreaking over here. And then pregame shots. What's the gap between you getting those shots up and then game time because if you're going back in watching film doing a yeah. like is it is it a complete cool down or is it yeah, a yeah. short oh yeah no okay. complete cool down I'm, I'm 2 hours i do my routine 2 hours before before tip um so we've been playing a lot of 8 p.m. games here in Miami so 6 p.m. i'm on the court every single time go through my shots usually about 15 to 17 minutes at the most um and you know it's it's all it's just kind of game shots, trying to move game speed, uh, just really get your your legs kind of locked in and, and ready to go. And then, uh, yeah, when I after that, I'm I'm like completely cooling down, taking some time. Do you have a set amount of makes, or is it a is yeah, it a it amount is. of shots? No, no, it's makes. Um, I'd have to count them up, and I'm not going to do that right now. <laughs> but it's it's yeah, it's it's basically uh, I make the exact same amount of shots every time. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's it for my follow-up questions. For yeah. Now. No, it was, it was good stuff. Um, great question from Chazing. I appreciate your uh, your level of interest in my my pregame routine. But uh, all right. So now we got our, our long shot feature. This one's incredible to me. Uh, we have Asia O'Neill. She's a redshirt sophomore at Texas, and she's currently on the women's volleyball team. She had her second open heart surgery last year and is now back on the court helping her team reach the Final Four, which I believe, Davis, kicks off this week, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So I, I live in a very big volleyball household. Uh, yep. All the women on my mom's side of the family played volleyball. My sister played volleyball. So Tess we have, Reed, yes. Tess Reed, uh, Loyola Marymount legend. 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 All-American setter. Legend. She actually, yeah. we've talked volleyball on this podcast before, and she was a little upset that I didn't give her a shout-out. So, Tess, here is your shout-out. Uh, I'd also I'd also like to say, you've seen, you've all seen Davis's high school mixtape. I can confidently say that he is the least athletic person in his family. That is a uh, fact. It is a dynamic group over there in the Reed household. So, uh, shout out to all the Reeds, particularly Clayton, just because he's, I don't know how old he is. That's, that's Davis's dad. Uh, and if you're looking for some high level pickup in the Kansas city area, he's running it. Uh, but this is, this is now a tangent, but shout out to the Reeds. Yeah. Well, the reason, uh, the reason I even bring any of this up is my house has been dialed in. My family's been dialed in to the women's volleyball tournament. We filled out brackets, you know, it's like, we're doing the whole thing. We got, we got bets on the table. It. Uh, so the, I know, I know that. Uh, we are now down to the final four. Texas is in the final four. So shout out to Asia. And yeah, just a, a, an amazing story. She had her first open heart surgery at 12, I believe. Had her second last year. And now she's out, uh, you know, I almost said hooping, but she's not hooping. She's out there 
uh, plan with the women getting to the final four. I love it. I don't know the terminology for volleyball. Hooping. Yeah. Balling, I think would work. She's balling. Balling. She's volleyballing. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So yeah, once again, shout out to Asia and now I'm pulling for Texas. Didn't think that would happen, but here I am. Yes. Um, all right. That, that pretty much wraps up the front of show. Uh, we want to get you guys to a really interesting conversation with Doris. Uh, she's, she just has a wealth of basketball knowledge, has seen so many things in the basketball world. Uh, and as you guys will learn, uh, she can do more than just talk about it. She, she can play a little bit as well. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Yeah, this one was awesome. We we had a whole list of questions to like go through her journey and her story. And we get to some of that, but we end up just talking hoops with her because like you said, she has a wealth of knowledge and it was just, yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, I think the, the thing that stuck out the most to me is just how prepared she is to just talk about anything basketball related yeah um and she can just take it in a variety of different directions so definitely an interesting conversation and like i said hope you guys enjoy this hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back in to the Long Shot Podcast. Joined by... Doris Burke, who was an all Big East point guard at Providence College and left as the all-time leader in assists, she then started calling Providence women's games on the radio and has since gone on to become one of the most beloved commentators in all of sports. The list of barriers she has broken in broadcasting is endless, but to name a few, she is the first woman to call a Big East men's basketball game, first woman to call a game for the New York Knicks, first woman to be assigned as a full-time NBA analyst, and last year she became the first woman to be an analyst for an NBA Finals game. And today, perhaps maybe her most impressive accomplishment to date, she is the first NBA analyst and the first woman to be a guest on the Long Shot Podcast. Welcome, Doris. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm so excited to be with you, Duncan. I uh, We were just talking before we started this, and I said we share something in common. Because when I read your imposter syndrome story and your talk with Eric Spolster about that, I remember sitting in Orlando going, I can sympathize with that. <laughs> well, you certainly have uh, an illustrious career. So at this point, um, I, I hope it doesn't, you know, uh, carry over you too much. But um, I actually I want to start off. Obviously, your your broadcasting career is well documented um, to some extent. We're going to get into that more. But I want to start off by actually talking about your playing career a little mm -hmm. bit. So mm -hmm. for ourselves and also the listeners, can you just shine a little bit of light on you as a player and maybe give us a, a little bit of a breakdown? Yes, definitely. So uh, you have the skill I was most envious of. Um, I could get anywhere I wanted off the dribble drive. My handle was tremendous. I was comfortable with multiple bodies around me. I would be willing to embrace a double team to find the next pass. Uh, that kind of pressure wouldn't bother me. Um, but I couldn't shoot to save my life. Do you want, and you want to know the stupid origin of my lack of confidence. Okay. 
So, and this is so silly, but uh, so when I was seven, we moved from New York to New Jersey and right next door is a park. And that was uh, the origin of me picking up a ball. So I'm seven years old. I'm the last of eight kids. Um, my parents basically say, go find something to do. And I pick up the ball at seven and I never put it down. And I actually in elementary school was a pretty good shooter, good driver. My freshman year in high school, I get moved up to varsity around December, a Christmas tournament in the town next to me on the Jersey shore. And for some reason, I'm really nervous. And this other team is giving me free throw line jumper after free throw line jumper. It's my first varsity game, Duncan, and I just keep missing that free throw line jumper. And I quickly realized right after that, well, that's okay because nobody can keep me in front of them and let me go to the rack. And so I was a big driver and one throughout my career, you know, a thousand point score in high school, thousand point score in college, but all while people were giving me this tremendous cushion. And it's like, you know, you know how like people are like, you have the ball. They're like, find them, sprint, get them off the line. Me, they're like, shoot it. <laughs> so that was my game. Dribble well, drive. A, a couple of things there. So it sounds like you're a, a classic park player in that, you know, you're probably playing with the double rims. You know, you, you got to get to the rim to be successful if you're going to be playing outside, especially in New York yeah. or New Jersey. You know, never know which way the wind's going to be blowing. Um, <laughs> and I also, I'll say this too. I think the hardest ones are are the open ones. You know, it's it's the contested ones for me yeah. that it's like, you know, you're just shooting freely. Uh, yeah. the, the, the ones that, you know, you're getting covered can be challenging. So I, I want to ask you this. Is there, when you cover games today, is there a player that you see play and you go, you know, I, I used to do a little something like that? No, there's no player. Uh, you know, I was a good Big East player at the time when uh, women's Big East basketball was like three three teams, we were, you know, nine teams total, three to start. The one thing I would say is I feel like I can recognize that lack of confidence in your jumper. And the person who comes to mind is Ben Simmons as it relates to that. And, um, you know, he's just this extraordinary, imposing physical, you know, 6'10 or whatever he is. And I marvel at his abilities, but I also feel like Ben sometimes doubts himself more than he should. And I watched that play out. And it's funny, I had Philadelphia, you know, within the last couple of days. And I said to Doc, he got out of the gate slowly. Then he started to get downhill. And I'm just talking in terms of number of drives, number of points, number of shots for Ben. Then he went through a lull and I had him the other night and he looked like the Ben that's going to be a problem for people. But to me, uh, I always wonder, is it just a confidence? Because the guy is absolutely magnificent. It's it's interesting you say that because, you know, I've seen Ben shoot in, in warm-ups and I see Ben shoot in yeah. the summer and yeah. it's a totally different dynamic. And it's it's hard to verbalize to people how different it is to go out there in a, in a game and shoot. And quite honestly, a large contributing factor to that is the sports media world that we live in today. Mm -hmm. Obviously social media is a huge issue in that yep. everybody has an opinion, but even experts, the way they, they talk, um, and you are certainly an expert. How have you seen the influence that you potentially have, or maybe your, your media collective, I should say, yeah. um, do you guys feel that you actually have weight in, I don't want to say, 
uplifting or potentially discouraging players um, or abilities in that sense? You know, I, I think number one, um, and this is any of us, you know, I hope if we open our mouths, we do it with a reasoned opinion um, or something supported by study, whether that's watching film, watching games, reading stories, talking to the players, talking to the coaches. Um, you know, I'll just reference myself because I don't want to speak for what, what an NBA player may interpret. But I've said this, Duncan, like um, there was a, a long stretch of my career where I was disliked. I'm not sure where the particularly when I was covering men's college basketball and certainly when I started as an analyst in the NBA and I was doing two jobs in the NBA report, sideline reporting and analyst. Now I've moved just to analyst. But, um, you know, I've said that if if Twitter and social media were more of a factor early in my career, and I had some of the things said about me in those spheres early before I had established some measure of confidence. I'm not, and I'm a pretty tough person, but I think I'm a pretty tough person. But um, I do think had that sort of weight, you know, kind of rained down on me early in my career, I'm not sure I would have been strong enough to, to withstand it. Because I have friends and family who will say to me, you know, Wait, how do you endure what people say on social media? I said, well, some of it's funny as hell, you know, <laughs> like, like one, one time somebody said, um, and this is pretty recent. Somebody said, you know, some days Doris looks like she's 40 and some days she looks like she's 60. And I thought, well, shoot, is that a family member? Because that's how I feel. <laughs> Uh, but but Doris, Duncan said this in your intro, you have become one of the most beloved voices in the game, it seems. And that's on social media too. I marvel at when I look at your colleagues, they all speak so highly of you, whether it's Van Gundy or, you know, other, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. Who are some of those guys and women too, when you think back on your career, who extended that hand to you and helped you along as you, as you grew in your career? Yeah, so um, there was a story out a couple of years ago. I think the first year I was an analyst full-time on the NBA. And uh, it was Jeff who really encouraged me, right? So Doug Collins Davis uh, decides he wants to get back involved with the team, and he goes back to the Chicago Bulls, and that opens up an analyst role. And we obviously have a, uh, a number of exceptional analysts across basketball, whether you're dipping down into college basketball with the Jay Billis, you know, and all those guys, Jay Williams, and then on the NBA as well. Like we have a wealth of really good color analysts. And, um, and it was Jeff who really encouraged me to pursue it. And I think he's also the one who's probably pushed back on people who maybe might've had something to say about me being there. You know, one thing I've never tried to do is I have never coached or played in the NBA, obviously. And I am mindful of that. You know, I approach my job as much from the person who remembers sitting at home watching college basketball in the NBA. And so the way I approach it is I am just trying to get that viewer to the best of my abilities and the broadcast team, because there's so many people involved as close to the action as I am fortunate enough to be. And so if a player, a coach says something to me that intrigues me, or I can feel it capturing the attention of the people I'm working with, 
then I'm going to do my damnedest to deliver that piece of information, you know, to, to the viewer. I'll tell you something that intrigued me just today. So I have the Knicks coming up. Julius Randle's playing great. I'm like, gosh, this guy is playing so much harder on the defensive end, so much harder and better. I mean, they just feel better. And so I, I reached out to this one young man that helps me in our research department. I said, what, what could just give me some level of comparison there. And he's like, of the power forwards with X number of possessions, he'd be like number one, he's top. And I thought, okay, my eyes aren't lying to me. So I can promise you on the Knicks game, as much as we're going to talk about Julius in another 40 point game, we're also going to draw attention to the fact that this guy has made a measurable commitment on the defensive end. First off, that that's that's awesome. And in terms of Julius, obviously the his performance, the numbers speak for themselves, but then also what the Knicks have been able to do this year. Um, he's obviously the centerpiece um, in everything that they're doing. You talk about kind of the the ethos of your job, or at least how you see it, is that you want to help viewers at home have this access that, that you have. How has this year, because it's such a unique year in so many ways, yeah. I've obviously experienced it as a player, how different it is. But I, I, I think something that's maybe lost in all this is how challenging it's been for people in your position, in that you've had this opportunity and access to be around players be around teams and now even calling the games over a zoom or, or over a lot or over a, uh, a broadcast how has that impacted and how has that been a challenge for you when you talk about trying to create this experience for viewers at home yeah it's uh, so in the month of april i'll be half in the arena and then half uh you know from my home and it's better in the arena but i'm still i i still feel somewhat distanced from you guys. And one of the things that's most helpful to me is we arrive at the arena maybe three or four hours in advance, and I can bump into players as they're hitting the floor. I can bump into assistant coaches. You know, we're still getting access to the head coach. But here's the thing I would, I like, Duncan. Number one, I want to say hello and know how you are all doing, right? Because your personal life and your professional life, like the rest of us, it's all part of our success in, in various ways. And so, and also the other thing is if I've said something objectionable, I would like for you guys to have the opportunity to say to me, hey, I disagree with that or whatever. Um, so I miss the human interaction. I miss, see, so Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, Hubie Brown, they have played or coached in the NBA. They have had their livelihoods on the line. I can't replicate that. Maybe a woman who comes out of coaching in the NBA, she can do that. What I have found is the number of cues that actually help me do, the, do my job. And I'll give you one for instance. Our crew had the Kevin Durant return game from his injury. And we were from our homes, which meant the, the home crew was in part giving us our feed, in part. But I don't have eyes on Kevin Durant. So we spoke to Steve Nash, maybe 90 minutes to tip via Zoom call. He sort of expected that Kevin would start, but in the 90 minutes between tip and that, it changed. I also, one of the things I believe in is body language is significant. I'm not catching everybody's body language. I'm not catching Duncan Robinson's interaction with Jimmy Butler all the time. 
because I'm not in the arena picking where I want my eyes to go. I am at the mercy of the camera feeds in front of me. And so there's a million things I miss. I would say the human interaction is the single most important, but I realize now, Duncan, like how many cues I pick up in arena that help me to do my job. The uh, the body language reminds me of a, a quote that I love, which is that uh, body language only yells, it never whispers. So that, uh, that just... that. that- Awesome. Yeah, that that made me think of that. I, I, uh, you bring up something interesting that I want to unpack a little bit. You talk about players objecting to maybe a point that you've made. Is yeah. there a memorable interaction that you're willing to share, whether it be a coach or a player yeah. saying, "Hey, you yeah. had this take and you're wrong," basically? Because I imagine a player or coach saying something. Sure. Like that. Yeah, and I, I'm, I, I'm, I can give you two, and they're both coaches, and I respect the hell out of both of them for calling me. It's one of the things I love about men is you will just say it. We'll look one another eye to eye. And generally speaking, we're going to move on from that. And listen, here's the fact. Like I get off the air every single night and I'm like, oh my God, really? That's the way you decided to say that, right? Especially if you're critical of somebody, because what you guys do is hard, right? What you do is hard. You pay a price to be in the spaces you are. And so if we're gonna be critical, it's important that it's a reasoned, again, well thought out, whatever. I mean, sometimes it's so blatant, you're like, okay, come on guys, like, you know, you gotta play harder than that or something like that. But I'm gonna give you two. The first one will be on the WNBA and Mike Tebow, uh, highly successful coach, WNBA champion, actually started his career in the NBA as an assistant coach really knowledgeable, has taught me so much. There's been so many coaches over the years who who have been patient and willing to explain when I didn't understand things. And uh, covering a WNBA game, I think it might've been the WNBA finals. And I thought Mike was engaging so much with the officials that he got away from his team a little bit. And I said it. And the next day I was at practice and he came right over to me and I'll never forget it. Rebecca Lobo is sitting right next to me. And he very calmly said to me, I disagree with you. I was making my point. It might've been extended, but it was appropriate. And I wasn't losing touch with my team. I said, okay, Mike, you know, no problem. I said, I obviously my opinion differed, but I said, I I so respect you coming over here. He walks away and Rebecca who had played with him or played for him said to me, just so you know, it's over now. I said, Hey, that's perfect for me. The other one was Larry Brown. Larry Brown's at SMU. And uh, I believe, and I, I, I hope I'm getting the story right because it's going back a little bit now. Uh, but I had their game at Stanford. We put the game on specifically because I think he had been suspended for some violation. But whatever, I, I said something that Larry objected to. I don't remember specifically what it was. Maybe it was about the suspension. And he just called me the next day. And I'm not going to lie, like, I was upset um, because I take my job seriously. And again, I know I make mistakes. It's I'm never, nobody's ever a hundred percent. You make mistakes as a player, coach might call the right wrong play, the wrong defense. It's part of our experience. But again, the very next time I saw coach Brown, who I love, who I love, he was cool. He's just like, all right, we've moved on. I made my point. You accepted my point and we keep it moving. So, 
real quick uh, first of all you're talking to two guys who are very non-confrontational so not all men will will just say it yeah uh, but you you said <laughs> earlier that you know the caveat that you didn't play play in the nba so you don't yeah. have that experience to lean on but yeah. you are part of the community mm-hmm. so is it a struggle then to be critical of players be critical of coaches yeah at davis it's an it's an excellent question you know um so I would say full time, right? Um, I've been an analyst since 1997 and, you know, played at Providence on scholarship two years as an assistant coach there. Um, but again, I've not had the responsibility of a head coach. Doesn't mean I'm not studied. Doesn't mean I'm not prepared. I am both of those things. I love this game. It has shaped my life since I was seven years old, probably in many ways, defined it to a sense that it was probably unhealthy for points, but provided me an education, gave me confidence I would have never otherwise had. But if I, if I would tell you one thing, well, I'll tell you two things. Um, Number one, you can tell like my confidence, like a player goes up and down and um, yes, I'm incredibly careful of of being critical. Uh, I'm going to pick my spots very carefully. I will pick my verbiage very carefully. And um, yeah, so yeah, that's hard. Like we all want to just celebrate the game, but the fact of the matter is my job requires me to do two things, which can be a challenge for me. And it's why I put a lot of time into it. You know, it's, um, you know, being critical. And then, like, one thing that gives me such stress is voting for these NBA teams and MVPs and Defensive Player of the Year, because you're talking about people's legacies are at stake. Sometimes money's at stake. Like, there's a lot on the line. I'm not, I'm not making these votes, you know, casually. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed either, right, if I pick the wrong person for X or Y. So, but that was a long-winded way of saying, yes, Davis, it's the other than relaxing and having fun on the air. I'd say that's the hardest part for me is being critical. And, and the thing that made me relax on the air was probably about um, almost a decade ago now, my son and I were watching the Olympics and the, we're just sitting next to each other and the announcers on the respective summer, league, uh, summer uh, Olympic sport they were having fun. They were laughing and joking. And he just looked at me and he said, mom, I'm not sure you understand that when you're on the air having fun, we are at home too. I thought, man, that's right. It's okay to relax and enjoy and have fun. And so. I think that's advice that Duncan and I can take also. <laughs> I'm taking notes over here. You best believe it. Uh, it's, it's so clear, like your love and, and passion for the game. I, I guess I, I don't want to assume, but I got to imagine you always envisioned yourself doing something in basketball. But was it for you? Was it broadcasting or did you think you were going to coach or what did how did it how did this all kind of materialize into what it is everyone sees today? Yes. So uh, it's almost laughable that I would be in the position I'm in because uh, I like to say I had bad hair, bad clothes, bad teeth and bad skin at Providence College. (laughs) And literally the only thing I cared about when I was a student athlete at Providence was could I get a jump shot to match my dribble drive ability because I knew I'd be unguardable. And none of that came to fruition. And I had bad skin and bad hair and bad clothes because I really could have cared less about any of it. 
Um, it's laughable. I was shy. I had no confidence um, outside of the four lines of a basketball floor. Um, but I thought, to be honest with you, when I left uh, my high school on the Jersey Shore, I thought I would come back and be a, a high school teacher and coach at Manasquan High School where I, where I played. I ended up spending two years as an assistant coach uh, at my alma mater, Providence, and loved every single second of it. But Duncan, at that moment, uh, you know, I also became engaged in the second year and wanted to get married and wanted to start a family. And I really, there were women who were coaching at the highest levels in Division One at the time. And the first person to come to mind is the great Pat Summit. But I was starting my days at Providence at 7 a.m. with individual workouts and ending at about 9, 9.30 after, you know, sort of recording what happened on recruiting calls. And I just did not think at that time I could do both jobs well. You know, maybe a mistake. I do, I do very much miss uh, coaching because I was that young woman who lacked confidence. And I know the coaches who had a profound influence on, on raising me up, making me feel good, you know. Um, and so I always thought that would be a part of my existence. But Listen, divine, I've always said divine providence has had a hand in the small of my back and it's kind of just made sure I've been where I needed to be. No, that's uh, it, it's interesting how, how things play out, it, you know, never like you anticipate. Um, but it's clear that you've always had that consistent love and, and passion for the game. I want to talk a little bit about your NBA broadcasting career. You've uh, had the opportunity to be in the building and covering some incredible moments in NBA history. I'm curious, when you're watching these moments unfold, are there any that stick out to you in terms of as you're actually there and it's happening in live action, that like the the magnitude is is palpable? Like I am, it's so clear that this is NBA history and I am in the building watching it. Is there anything that really sticks out? Oh yeah, there's been a few moments for sure. Uh, one of them is, is the Miami Heat. Uh, it is the San Antonio Spurs having the Miami Heat on, on the ropes, so much on the ropes that the red uh, draping rope is around the court in Miami. And, you know, the heatles are about to go down to the San Antonio Spurs. And I literally am standing next to, or I shouldn't even say I'm standing. If you can see it, I think I had a skirt on. But it's so packed in that building. It is actually blazing hot. And in my head, I am rifling through questions because I'm going to host the podium celebration. And I'm thinking, all right, you're going to interview Pop, you know, Kawhi. You're going to interview Tony, you, you know. And I am in my head rifling through where are you going with all of these players? That's how much the series is on the ropes. And I've got the armband on my arm, which will allow security to let me to get to that podium celebration. And a uh, longtime NBA employee by the name of Todd Harris, who is now deceased, but one of the finest human beings I've ever met, um, he is ready to escort me out to the court. And then, you know, the Chris Bosch rebound pitch to the corner and, you know, the rest is history. That occurs and I'll just... I mean, there's been a million, you know, when LeBron went to Miami and the vitriol that was spewed at him 
was so vicious and ugly and personal. And then to be there for his first championship, to, to be there for his first championship uh, in Cleveland, you know, game seven, uh, to be standing behind the benches at times, right? And you're listening to the conversations and you're seeing these guys interact with one another. And you can almost feel the pressure on their shoulders. It's just, it's really, I know how lucky I am really and truly to have been there. I appreciate you, Davis. I'll let you get to your question, but I appreciate you bringing up a heat moment. We have a lot of heat listeners as you could maybe <laughs> imagine. So uh, that's, that's great pandering for us. So thank you for that. I was gonna, I was actually going to say the exact same thing, Doris. Our listeners are going to love that you went to two heat moments, uh, which is which is incredible. I've I've heard you talk about that game six in 2013, uh, and then you know obviously Miami goes on to win game seven, and you have an interaction with Pop afterwards oh, yes. after he's now lost two in a row to lose an NBA Finals. Can I ask you just to share that that story? Yes, and if you don't, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to share one other one. Before before the pop moment. So the next day after they lose game six, we obviously sit down with the players and coaches. And you guys know how stoic Tim Duncan is. But Tim Duncan walks into our interview room and they've dropped game six. And I just look at him and I say, oh, my God, I just, I just want to hug you. <laughs> right? Like. I am the mother of us, you know, both a son and a daughter, but my son is sort of in the window of these, the, these men's ages. And I'm like, I just want to hug you. And he laughs and he does the interview. And, you know, Tim, like Tim was just level and cool and he was fine. And he knew there was a game seven, but then he stands up to leave this really small interview room in the, in the Miami uh, heat arena. And we just sort of lock eyes and we laugh. We just, I don't know. It's just, we laugh because he's like, you don't have to hug me. I'm a hundred percent fine. So out he goes. So they drop game seven and everybody knows, you know, Greg Popovich and, and, you know, sort of the difficulties of interviewing him in all circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But they've dropped game seven. So maybe arguably the worst moment of this guy's career, Davis, maybe not, but, and he has such great perspective anyway. While I know basketball is the single most important thing in the moment, I also know that when you guys leave, obviously you're human beings with much more important things to, to worry about and consider. But, uh, but he's walking out and he's back in, he's changed out of his suit. He's in sweats. He's got this garment bag over his shoulder. And I am about to literally cross paths. And I'm, I just am dying for everybody as happy as you are for this group. You're dying for the other group. So I step out of the way. Pop grabs my shoulders. And he said, now, Doris, what will you do in the offseason? Thinking to myself, how the hell do you have that kind of composure? <laughs> but it's so pop. He grabs my shoulder. I said, well, Pop, actually, you know, believe it or not, I'm, I'm going to make a trip to, to Napa. I, I want to go out there. And he said, here, I want you to call my secretary and before you go. And he literally sent me the longest email, go to X, Y, and Z, these wineries, here's where to have dinner, do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there were not moments when I was interviewing Pop and I got those brusque answers that I wasn't either 
you know, angry, embarrassed, you know, all the things all of us have talked about over there on the sideline when it's not fun. But I also know that 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 is so far from who the man is, right? He's this wonderful, thoughtful, incredibly successful human being that I have just such great respect and admiration for. It's it's really cool to hear moments like that because I think a lot of people's interactions with him are in those little spurts where it's like, come on, he's putting this poor sideline reporter through it right now. But there's so much that's come to light about who he really is as a person. uh, And that that story really encapsulates it. Um, I want to ask you, you were alluding to earlier about when that game six is coming down to the wire and all these things are going through your head in terms of how you need to execute your job. How do you kind of weave in and out of being a fan? Because that's like you, you love the game and, and you have passion for the game, doing your job at a high level and kind of being able to do both because you want it to be enjoyable for you as well. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you've gotten uh, good at it to be able to do that. But there has to be some sort of a balancing act there, I imagine. Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you one moment that really sticks out for me. And again, I, I think people think we root. I mean, I, I have to be honest with you, and I grew up a Knicks fan. And so, like, to watch a little bit of their success after two decades of abject failure, like, is somewhat fun for me. But when I, when I sit in the chair to be an analyst or when I'm a reporter, I'm not a Knicks fan. I'm an NBA broadcaster. And you do have some measure. I, I think people can lose sight of the fact that we have objectivity, generally speaking. We're not home broadcasters, so we don't get to sort of root. Um, but I do remember like one moment where I I did lose a little bit of balance or I lost my composure and only my closest friends picked up on this. And the stat, Mike Breen Statman, the great Dave Freed, also picked up on it. And he, he called me out on it on the ride back to the hotel after the game. When, when, when Cleveland won game seven, Duncan, and LeBron fell to the floor and is weeping and his shoulders are going up and down because he's, he's crying. I think he's crying. Like he's crying. And literally I've got to interview him and I'm getting choked up because of this emotion I'm seeing with this guy. And the first question I asked him, you could actually hear my voice crack. And only my closest friends picked up on it. And Dave Freed said it too. He's like, did you get emotional? I said, David, don't say a word. (laughs) And it had nothing to do with, I was rooting for them. I mean, we had compelling series after compelling series, you know, Steve Kerr and, and Steph and Clay and Draymond, they have been such an absolute pleasure to cover. But in that moment, the human moment of oh my god this man is losing his mind because he's won this championship for the place he grew up in uh yeah i I remember that i was like oh my god i hope nobody noticed (laughs) i want to talk a little current nba um we were talking a little bit before we we got on live but I just want your thoughts on the MVP race right now. Uh, Obviously, you have a vote. And I'm really curious, do you you see this at this point basically as a two-person race uh, between Jokic and Embiid? And on top of that, I I also want to ask kind of a follow-up in that how do you feel that media really shapes 
these narratives. And for example, like Embiid, it's almost like a, a bully pulpit tactic where he goes into these post-game press conferences and he starts talking about how he should be the MVP and it just kind of puts himself in in now the conversation. You watched Harden do it earlier this year as well. Yeah. Um, I just kind of want your opinion on that kind of as one big question, I guess. I know I asked you to, but bear with I, me. I'd say they're smart for doing it. They're smart. He's smart for doing it. Just like Ben is smart. And I, I hate to say that, right? Because we say, well, we, so, we say, oh, well, somebody else sh- should praise you, not yourself. But here's the fact of the matter. Go back to Draymond. Listen, Draymond is brilliant on the defensive end. But the year he won Defensive Player of the Year, he was the first guy to say it. I'm going for Defensive Player of the Year. Well, all of a sudden, the media were paying attention to that. And San Francisco has a lot of media. And so you're getting inundated with these stories about what he's doing on the defensive end. But Draymond Green, right out of the gates, is the first one, I think, who brought that up. And we all know he's brilliant defensively, but he put it into the minds of the voters. And so um, as it relates to the MVP, and I said this on Zach Lowe's podcast, I mean, listen, at that point, last, whenever it was, a week, 10 days ago, I don't even remember now, at the time, those two were separated by, in PER by 0.2 percentage points, like 31.4 to 31.2. Their numbers across, their efficiency, both brilliant. Um, you know, Jokic holding it down through any number of in- injuries. And because he had played 51 and Joel had played 33, I said, if you were asking me today, I would say Nikola Jokic. One thing that Zach said that surprised me, and then I saw the follow-up article by Tim uh, Bontemps, was that he thought it'll be a landslide. And I'm thinking, not if Joel comes back and dominates, not if he gets to 50. I don't even know what's possible. I'll have to look because I have them. I have a game Sunday and Monday, and I'll, I'll if he if he plays the rest, I'll know what he's capable of playing. But Joel Embiid, and I've said this, I wish I could curse on your podcast. That is a bad bump a bump. That's a bad <laughs> bump a bump. This is an explicit because, podcast, Doris. All right, so because here's the fact, and this is my worst quality is cursing, but <laughs> I swear like a pirate, it's awful. But like, and I've said this for years, and, and Philly fans are so sick of me saying it because, well, they're like, he's not like that. But I've said over and over and over again, if Joel Embiid were as motivated and pursuing greatness the way Giannis Antetokounmpo or Le- LeBron James is, I want your opinion, Duncan. He'd be the most dangerous, baddest MF in the NBA. Am I out of my mind if this guy were in condition, playing hard, 48 or however many minutes, and with that level of focus, who'd be dealing with this guy? No, I, I think you're right in that he has – you just watch him play and and there's just nothing you can do with with his combination of size and skill his ability at his size to play with the ball touch handle shoot everything um there there's really he's like a true unicorn in my opinion um all i mean you mentioned obviously a bunch a handful of superstars but uh i i do agree with you i i do yeah yeah and like and so and so it's funny cuz i saw kevin nagandi who's a huge, you know, like love Kevin, worse, used to work on the women's tournament with him. But he's like, Joel Embiid is the MVP. I saw Tony Kornheiser on PTI the other night say, 
if you have eyes and you're watching James Harden was the MVP, and I'm like, and here's the thing, like, whatever you say and whatever I vote, I'm glad they make it public, right? I'm glad because you have to be reasoned. Again, it doesn't mean we're right. And fans are going to think you hate this guy. I love Joel Embiid. And just like I love Nikola Jokic. Now you're talking about two distinctly different personalities, but two guys, Duncan, that I think they're, they're so appealing in their own right. Jokic could care less about the NBA lifestyle. He can't get, you know, six inches underneath him when he gets up for a rebound, although he's playing more athletically. But the guy is so gifted. And so I find him appealing on so many levels. Same with Joel. Like there's a part of me that loves sort of that he's more relaxed and a little bit of fun. And I was in the building the night he's going at Russ on OKC and they're waving at each other and they're going off. Like I am here for all of that. So I don't know who my MVP is, but right now it's a two-man race. It's Jokic and Embiid for me. Guys, I got to be honest with you. It seems like we're forgetting about a guy named Stephen Curry. Yeah. He has been unbelievable over the last couple of weeks. Do you see any world where he enters himself into the race? Well, I agree. He's absurd. Um, I don't know the answer to that. You know, who's top five? You know, Damian Lillard for a long stretch absolutely was top five. You know, he's, he's functioning without so many key guys. And a guy who may never win MVP, but as much when we look back at the greatest shooters in the history of the NBA, Damian Lillard's going to be there. And more often than that, that guy saves his best moments for when things are in the balance. And that is truly special. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. You know, I may call Duncan and ask him when I'm voting for first team, second team, <laughs> you know, what do you do with guys like Devin Booker? And, and Donovan Mitchell, who after All-Star game, Donovan Mitchell's numbers are truly out of this world. Like, listen, voting on, trying to make an All-NBA first team is no joke. Trying to win oh, MVP man. is no joke. LeBron's only got four. I mean, let's face facts. To Duncan's point about narrative or what the influence of media is or, quote, uh, uh, what do we call it? Like the fatigue, uh, voter fatigue. We want a new story. It's so isn't that so America, right? We want what's next. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that you could find, particularly players who who line up against him, that could would say that LeBron should be the MVP every year. You know, but it, it's just it's never gonna play out that way. Um, I want to ask kind of a, a big picture question. In recent years, there has been a much uh there's been an improved effort i should say to involve women particularly in the nba uh at least even in my time i've seen an increase in women assistance and just the general involvement and also you have somebody like becky hammond who, who i believe is on the cusp of potentially being a head coach uh in this league which would be incredible uh on so many fronts what do you feel needs to continue to be done to push this progress forward and allow opportunities for women, uh, maybe particularly in the NBA, but like just in, in the sports world, maybe in general as well? Well, I think change is hard. That's first and foremost. And um, as a woman, just being completely honest with you, you know, in the aftermath of the Me Too movement, I could feel both subtle and overt pushback to that. Um, meaning, 
And this doesn't have to be in the sports world. This can be my friends in, in the business world where, uh, you know, you'll get somebody go, well, you can't say anything to a woman anymore. You can't tell her she looks this or that. Well, no, no, that's not what this is about. You know, this is about um, fairness and equity and opportunity. And one thing I'm going to say about this next generation of women, like I look at Candace Parker and I can't tell you guys, like watching her on that set in TNT, because she's young, right? She's still, she's reigning defensive player of the year in the WNBA. You know, I watched Candace. I was in the building the first night she dunked at Tennessee. It was in the NCAA tournament against um, Navy. Like, I just love it that Candace believes she belongs at such a young age. And there's this comportment about her, like I belong. And so this next generation of female across, uh, across uh, jobs, industries, name it, I just feel like they're not going to accept it anymore. And you could say the same thing as we watch the social justice and treatment of African-Americans and uh, Asian Americans and Latin, the Latinx community, it feels to me like we are at this seminal moment in history, uh, hopefully a, a real dynamic shift. And for African Americans, for women, for Asians, Duncan, I think you could probably say sometimes it feels like change moves at a glacial pace. But I remember when Adam Silver, and this was during one of the early Cleveland Golden State NBA Finals matchups. It was at that moment that Adam Silver said, I want to see a woman head coach in the NBA sooner rather than later. And I thought, and I don't want to put words in Adam's mouth, but I want to tell you my interpretation of that moment. My interpretation of that moment was, we. I don't think Becky was on San Antonio's staff at that point. She may have been, you'd have to, you know, we'd have to dig that out a little bit. What I think Adam Silver was trying to do was accelerate the process. He knew that Becky Hammond was going to have to go pay her dues. She, you know, Tom Thibodeau was an assistant coach for 17 years or something, right? Like there's a process to learning the NBA game. So you, now you got to get those women in the player development system. They've got to, you know, be on the second row of assistant coaches and they've got to move up because this game, move so damn fast. Like, I feel like I learned one piece of the NBA and then I got 55 more things that I got to go figure out. And so like, that's, that's the way it is in life. But if we don't get people in the door, how are we ever going to change? And just, I, my son is so sick of hearing me say this. I'm like, you will pay your women. If you ever own a company, you will pay your women appropriately. You will pay them a fair wage. And I think if we could all, and I don't just mean me, I'm talking about everybody, we can get so lost in, 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 and because it's life, right? You have family concerns, you have job concerns, you're trying to save money for retirement, you're trying to have a relation, you're trying to do all the things we all do, but we can get narrow focus. And I've said this before, I used to bitch all the time, women make 82 cents on the dollar in this country. And then I heard Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion do a program on ESPN before they left. And they said, well, African-American women make 65 cents on the dollar. And if you're Latinx, you're absolutely screwed because you got no shot. And so it's like, and obviously no shots, you know, 
a little bit of an exaggeration, but you see what I'm saying. My prism was women when I needed to widen my prism and not just think in terms of a gender. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes I, I totally hear you with the, the feeling as it moves at a glacial pace. Sometimes it, it helps to have that context and that perspective to see, okay, well, we're, we're at least moving in the right direction. And not that that's good enough, but to maintain accountability and at least maintain understanding that this is a priority and this needs to continue to be pushed forward. And obviously having people like yourself as advocates um, and and using your platform and your voice, I think is undoubtedly helping um, and and continuing to push this important conversation to the forefront and continuing to push um, qualified candidates. Because that's the thing I think a lot of people might lose in all this is that these women that are on these staffs are really, really good at what they do. They're the best at what they do. And they're bringing something to an NBA staff um, or as an analyst, a perspective that is missing, quite honestly, in my opinion. Um, you, you've been awesome, first off. Thank you so much. I, I feel like we've taken so much of your time. Uh, before we get to our little undrafted segment, we try to ask all of our guests one question, and this is more of kind of about your journey on your career as a whole. And I'm I'm curious if there is a specific moment or a conversation, uh, and you've touched on some already, but if, if there's one that sticks out to you as a turning point or as a springboard for your success where things kind of, you look now look back and recognize that things really kind of started to, to change for you. Yeah. I mean, there's been a million of those. And it's, as you know, when you're trying to get better, you know, it's, you got to put in the work and then you have to have some lucky breaks and then you have to have people in your corner. As an analyst, you know, the advent of the WNBA changed my career because I was doing women's college basketball games, probably about 25 to 30 in the winter. When the W started in 1997, I could now do another 25 to 30 and for the first time in my career, do what Dick Vitale and Bill Raftery and these guys did, which is just be a basketball analyst. So I could make a living between two seasons. That's one, Um, you know, in, in, and then because I was at Madison square garden as the Liberty announcer, the head of Madison square garden network, thought well enough of my work that he said, if Clyde ever takes a night off, I want you to do it because we think your basketball knowledge is that good. So that's another break. In 1999, this man, Bob Stites, who's now works for the Sixers, he was the commissioner or associate commissioner of the A-10. Now think about this. You know what the Atlantic 10 was like back then. It was like fighting for respectability. It wasn't the Big East. It wasn't the ACC or the Big 10 or the, you know, the Big 12, whatever. And he made me the lead analyst in 1999 for the uh, for the A10. But you know, you have to have some intrepid spirit. You know, Pop, Pop deciding that's it. You know what? I just I just conversed with this woman for seven hours or whatever on the way back from the Olympics. She's good enough. Let me hire her. Um, so there's a, there's been a million of those, Duncan. Love that. Thank you for uh, some shining some additional light. So to wrap it up, uh, we're going to do our, our undrafted segment here, kind of like a quick hitter uh, little yeah. segment. Uh, just to reiterate, it's we're going to give you three different topics, and we yeah. just want you to pick kind of the, the undervalued, the underappreciated, or the undrafted uh, of each of the topics. So I'm actually going to start it off. Dave will uh, bat second here, and then I'll finish it. Uh, the first one is 
the perk, a perk of your current job that you feel is kind of lost in everything? Oh boy. Uh, well, I think people think traveling is glamorous. I think because you're a player, you know that it can be a grind. <laughs> but the one perk that I think can be overlooked, and a lot of times I'm just seeing hotel and gym, but say during an NBA finals or a conference finals, we might get, you know, have the good fortune of spending three, four, five days in a city and we might have an off day. So the opportunity to have traveled to any number of cities across the United States and see those cities, uh, you know, even if it's a little less than probably people think that's, that's a big perk. I think traveling I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I can definitely reiterate. I, I love that as well. I love being in different cities and, and seeing our country and, you know, Toronto obviously in this setting is great, but it, there are parts of NBA travel that are, are not glamorous. Uh, oh, that's, that's coming I'm, from somebody. I'll fly in the middle of the night yeah. and get up and play. I had no idea. With that being said, it's all relative because I spent a year traveling in the G League, and that is the <laughs> definition of not glamorous. So I try to keep it all in perspective. <laughs> That's beautiful. All right, I got the second one here, Doris. I'm, yeah. I, I want to know the underrated player or coach for you to interview, just an enjoyable person to talk to. Oh, gosh. Underrated player or coach. Man. This is a this is a good one. Um, I'll tell you who I really love interviewing. I mean, I really everybody has been great over the years. And I will say I'm going to say this to you guys, just as it relates to the point you made, Duncan, about sort of society changing is like the interactions between me and the players. I do think has been part of what has changed people's attitudes toward me. Because if the best players in the world are having dialogue and showing a measure of respect, because I'm obviously respecting the job they did, I do think that that has a profound effect on people at large. Um, I'm going to say Damian Lillard. And I, and it's not even just with me. Like I watch him with Brooke Olzeldam, their sideline reporter. And it's like, it's a grind every day, right? We're in these guys' face multiple times a day. We're in their space in the locker room, which... I wish to God we never had to enter a locker room, but, um, but, but Damien, like it's always a thoughtful answer. You can see him hesitate for just a minute because he's processing it. And despite the fact that it's constant in your face, cause he's like the best guy every single night, you know, he's doing it night after night after night. And the, and the fact that he shows up every time ESPN is in the building, he never turns us down. Um, you know, for us, it makes like the fans want to hear from the players. They are there to watch the players. So if they sit with us, if they give us a time, I love that. So I'm going to say Damian Lillard. I'm sorry it's not a a, a lesser known because I think you were sort of looking for maybe somebody who was lesser known there. No, that's a great that's a great answer. I think uh, any answer other than Pop would have been a good one because that's <laughs> yeah, that's. Right. <laughs> Damian had a in my opinion, a legendary post-game interview earlier this year. Uh, it kind of caught on and went viral a little bit. Um, but he, they had just won, and, and he started talking about – he was asked about his endorsements and all these different things, and he went on this little monologue about like how the work comes first. And all of this is – you know, he has access to all of this stuff because he handled his business, and he continues to handle his business and keeps that the priority, um, yeah. which yeah. I loved. Yeah. Listen, Duncan, I love him like – 
you know, uh, you know, he grows up in Oakland. He goes to school in Ogden and he performs in Portland professionally. And he has made a commitment to each of those three places. He does it without pounding his chest. He does it without, you know, trying to get fanfare for it. Uh, you're talking about just a quality human being. And uh, I mean, there's so many of those stories. You know, Mike Green said this. See, I'm going to wear you guys out. You're like thinking you're taking up my time. Like Mike Green said this last year when we were trying to do a good job in the in the bubble, documenting obviously the winners and losers, but also documenting the unique space in which you were working. But then also the pain that all of the players were feeling about the country at the time. And Mike Green tried to make the point, and I thought appropriately so, like these guys are doing this in their communities long before the death of George Floyd. Like they've long made commitments to the places they're living and working and trying to make change. So, no, absolutely. Um, that that that's a, a great point for sure. And I I, I want to wrap up the undrafted. Uh, we hear that you're a fried chicken fan. That's your favorite food. So give yeah. us a, uh, a kind of a diamond in the rough, maybe the hidden gem of fried chicken spots. Here's the most embarrassing thing I do. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm now because I'm 55 and like weight doesn't come off as easily. If I go to Memphis for a game, I've got to time my arrival so that Gus's fried chicken is closed. <laughs> because otherwise, I'm walking in there. I'm not getting any of the sides. I don't want the white bread. Don't give me the mac and cheese. I want nothing. Give me that brown paper bag of like eight to nine pieces of fried chicken. Oh, yeah. And then I am just having at it. Fried chicken is a personal weakness, and I'm a decent cook, but I have never been able to make fried chicken well. If uh, next time you're in Miami, you have to check out Q K Y U. Uh, okay. They have it's it's not quite like Gus's. It's not the brown paper bag, um, but it's not like a super upscale restaurant either. But they make fried chicken, and it is incredible. To this day, it's the best fried chicken I've ever had. Wow! Um, so you, there's Gus's. Yes, yes, yeah. And we you we better. It's it's a different it's a different type of fried chicken I might say. Um, okay. I will say Gus's after a game, particularly after a win back on the plane, is oh. as, as good as it gets uh, so, as well. Nashville hot, Nashville hot. Uh, there's a very famous restaurant there. Uh, oh, I'm not going to remember it. I went to a women's final four there once, and this place was dynamite, and their fried chicken was great. But I can't remember. It's been years. Love it. That's that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Doris, thank you so much. Uh, you have been uh, just a, a joy to, to converse with and, and interview. Um, thank you for all your insight and thank you for your time. More importantly. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so fun. Thank you, Davis. Appreciate it. Thank you, Duncan.